Welcome to The Driven Entrepreneur, where we sit down with visionaries, trailblazers, and entrepreneurs, and discover why and how they do what they do. We'll get the backstory, plus plenty of life and business lessons along the way. Here's your host, Matt Browning. Hello, welcome back to The Driven Entrepreneur. It's Matt Browning, and it is another gorgeous Friday. Well, it is a couple of days before Friday as we record this, but for you, I know this is dropping on Friday for you because you're looking forward to that entrepreneur weekend where you're trying to hopefully get some free time. At the same time, you probably have a lot of people to manage. You have a lot of staff to manage. You're trying to hire someone. You got, Or maybe you have nobody on your staff and you're busy trying to, to field every single request and be your own assistant. Well, fear not because we have a solution in mind. Today, I'm going to be talking with Derek Gallimore. And Derek has this really cool blend of like um, international business and travel experience, but also running outsourcing. So he has an outsourcing business, came very, very naturally to him because he's been all over the world and doing business for over two decades. Uh, he's lived in uh, Manila in the Philippines. In fact, he's calling from Manila right now. So he's, he got up. It's 6 a.m. for him right now. So I'm so grateful for him to be here after he's worked in five countries, lived in five countries, traveled through dozens and dozens more. This guy knows his stuff. He's also founded and bootstrapped two eight-figure businesses, enjoyed fantastic success, um, but he's also had a lot of challenges. So we're going to get right into it and why his current business is working so well for him. Derek, welcome to the show. How are you, my friend? Hi, Matt. Thank you so much. I'm great. Thanks for that intro. Fantastic. Hey, thanks for showing up at 6 a.m. But, you know, for me, I get up at 6 every day, usually to pee and go back to bed. But you said you're in your gym clothes and normally you're, you're hitting the gym in the Philippines by 6 a.m. Tell me about the Philippine lifestyle a little bit. How is it different from different parts around the world, kind of the more Western world we're used to? Yeah, absolutely. Luckily, I'm a, I'm a morning person. So if you try and get a call with me at 7 p.m. I'm just absolutely done, but mornings really work. Uh, the Manila is, is a great city. The Philippines, you know, it's, it's very diverse. There's about 110 million people here, and many of them don't have, you know, a, a sort of a good enough income to really help themselves and their family. Um, but it is also a very affluent country, and outsourcing has really uh, increased the level of affluence for many, many Filipinos. Uh, in terms of lifestyle here, it's always hot. It's always sunny. Um, and, you know, you can have a really good life here. And there's incredible, uh, there's an incredible city here in Manila. And, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really enjoying my time here. Do you get a lot of off time? Like in, in my head, if I'm going to live in the Philippines, it's going to be nothing but spa services and jungle hikes every day. Do you, do you yeah. get some time for that stuff? Or is it mostly going into an office like any other business? It is, unfortunately, you know, you got to put the, it, it is a grind. You got to put the hours in and Manila, unfortunately, so Philippines has 7,000 islands and Manila um, is in a city with no real access to the beach. Um, and it can take you sort of three or four hours to get to the nearest beach. So there's a lot of concrete here. There's a lot of tall buildings. Um, so it's very much, you know, got a city vibe. Uh, but in terms of culture, as you said, uh, everyone is speaking English around here. There's a lot of huge American influence. They're all watching NBA, eating pizza. Um, so it's very much like a, <laughs> a Western culture here in Manila. I love that. Um, my, my biggest question before we get to the rest of this is how big is pro wrestling over there? WWE, is it big, not big? 
not so big. I'm not into it that much. Like everyone's watching the sort of MMA and things like that. And I've noticed that there's a few, um, whatever they are, tours or, or fights over here. Um, and of course they have Manny Pacquiao here, which is a sort of well known oh. boxer. Um, so they, they you know, love they their Manny man connect all that stuff. Yeah. That's outstanding. So uh, obviously you don't have the Philippine accent. Uh, how long ago did you come over there? And cause you've lived in, in multiple different countries. Tell me a little bit about just kind of where, like where you started. And initially when you started moving countries, was there a culture shock or was it s- sort of similar cultures until you had West meets East. Where, where'd you grow up? Yeah, well, I was born in the UK, uh, but I left when I was three. My parents uh, migrated over to New Zealand when it wasn't so common to sort of move around with your family. Uh, I stayed there until about 18, and then I, I moved over to Sydney, Australia, as I sort of once I got my degree or university qualification, stayed there a few years, went to uh, South America for a year, then headed to London for about eight years, then Sydney for about six years again. Then I've been in uh, Manila for about five years. So, yeah, moving about a bit. Look, a lot of them are very uh, Western culture, all English speaking. So, you know, I've, uh, yeah, I haven't pushed myself out there too crazy in terms of different cultural alignments. But, uh, yeah, it's been good. Man, that, that is uh, quite cool. So your parents were, were UK then. And how was, how was uh, New Zealand growing up? Were you North Island, South Island? Wh- where were you mostly? And was it very entrepreneurial? Was it very like blue collar, just, you know, get a job or work the farm? What was that kind of childhood family lifestyle like down there? Yeah, New Zealand was, I was in Hamilton, which is up in North Island. It was the fourth biggest city in New Zealand, but it had about 120,000 people uh, there as, as population when I was growing up. So it's a super small town in a super small country. That's a long way from the rest of the world. And I really had a sense of that, that, uh, you know, it's, um, it's quite an isolated country. And I felt that as soon as I grew up, I, I needed to get out and explore the world. Um, entrepreneurship wasn't a thing. And also my parents, um, you know, they were, they were sort of white collar workers, but they would always refer to themselves as working class and just go down the safe route, get a safe job. You know, of course, to be, um, to be safe and secure, uh, that was their priority for the kids, but it, it wasn't, there wasn't conversations about entrepreneurship. Was there a reason, um, that they had such a strong safe and secure so like some people I know, you know, their mom or dad went through major divorce or loss, something that happened where they were like, you know what, I don't want this to happen to my kids. Did, did, was there some kind of a story like that in the family or was it just kind of the mindset of that generation? I think it's the generational thing. Like they were born just after the war and I think they grew up in a um, pretty pretty poor uh, UK, you know, it took the UK sort of 15 years to recover from the second world war that everyone was on food stamps and stuff like this. So I think there was just a conservatism born um, out of that, you know, just the sort of monotony of life and just make sure you can get a house and, and be secure. Um, you know, I don't know, I'm, I'm sort of judging that, but there was nothing specifically with my parents, but also I think parents always push towards just make sure they're safe, happy, as opposed to, you know, really kind of going out on a limb and, and trying to shoot 
for the stars sort of thing. Yeah, it's, it's almost instinctual, is it? It's like when you think about your kid, you think, man, I want them to be the best in the world. I want them to have amazing experiences. But ultimately, there's this piece where it's like, yeah, but if that doesn't work, I want to make sure that they're at least alive. Hey, quick, just for bragging rights, uh, what area in the UK? We have a lot of UK contingent listening. Um, wow, cool. What, what, what's the heritage? Yeah, I was born in Coventry, um, which you know doesn't have a great reputation, but it's fantastic, and all of my family is around there. Uh, but when I went back to the UK, I lived in London for about uh, eight years. English boy. Okay, all right. Well, that's fair enough. Let's move on. <laughs> I want to get into some of the the businesses. So when you when you started moving around London, Sydney. Um, I've been in both cities, uh, working quite a bit in Australia for a few years, actually. So we got something nice. in common there. And man, there's there's so much opportunity around. Did you jump right into starting businesses and doing that work? Or did you think you were going to go kind of working for some kind of prominent international company? What was the dream, like, you know, from 18 to, I don't know, like 30 years old in that in that early range? Yeah, when I was I, I was aching to get on the map to do something special to kind of break out of of you know that uh, the gravity field that you're sort of in as a kid, I suppose. Uh, and at 17, I started uh, to be a personal trainer at the gym, uh, one of the world's famous gym brands, which was Les Mills. Um, that was sort of out of New Zealand, and luckily I became a personal trainer, which. At 17, I was very young. You learn a lot of skills, though, because you're then, you know, kind of promoting your own brand and business and trying to get clients, uh, service the clients, obviously, and bringing in money. So it wasn't a big business by any means, but it uh, certainly taught me the ropes. Um, but I realized very quickly that I was super keen to uh, do something different and not just work in a nine-to-five. Um, and then it was only really in once I got back to London after traveling uh, in South America for a year uh, that I was able to seize an opportunity, which was to buy my first investment property. Um, but I was, there was probably five years of scratching around trying to find the outlet for my entrepreneurial drive or whatever. Um, and eventually it came around to this, this property and I sort of seized it with both hands and and went for it, but it, it certainly wasn't easy. And back then as well, which isn't a long time ago, but only sort of 15, 20 years ago, there was not this um, online community of entrepreneurs, all this conversation around entrepreneurs and all of these support systems for entrepreneurs. So it was certainly a, a path that you had to travel more alone back then. Yeah, I, I, can, I can say the same thing. You know, I'm, I'm 39 now as we're recording this, my birthday's coming up. And wow. man, I, you know, I remember starting my first business at 22 and however long ago that was, 17, 18 years ago. But you're in this place where it's like, I guess the internet exists, but it's really like chat rooms and AOL and things like that. And mm. you're not really going there, you know, for camaraderie. It was like people went to talk about cats, I suppose. And I remember thinking that I was the only person in the room usually, especially that age, right, that, that had a business or had that kind of vision. Most of my friends were in school or, you know, working kind of run-of-the-mill jobs. It felt very isolating. For you, when you when you started traveling around, did you have people that you landed with or was it kind of you against the world or, or you for the world, however you want to put it, um, in a new city trying to give it a go, figuring it out? Or did you have sort of uh, people that you fell into or family in these different places? Yeah, no, uh, yeah, no one, no one. Uh, just sort of figuring it out, really. And I suppose my inspiration was books. I wasn't 
terribly bookish, like I wasn't reading a lot of books, but I got inspired by, you know, two or three books. Um, and I, I didn't know necessarily I needed to run a business, but I just needed a lifestyle that was different. I aspired a lot to Wall Street at that generation. You know, I think you can probably relate to this. Like there was all the sort of lawyer programs on TV at the time. I thought that was really exciting. This is way before anyone knew about Silicon Valley. Um, but as you said, there were no accelerators. There were no hackathons. There were no pitch competitions. There were no um, entrepreneur environments. So um, it was certainly something you had to do alone. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't, there were no meetup groups. I wouldn't even know how you would find other entrepreneurs, to be honest, um, kind of 15, 20 years ago. It would have been uh, quite a, uh, you know, a, a thing that you would do by yourself, I think. Yeah, I, I would think so as well. Well, moving from there, um, what w- besides the real estate business, was was this your first major business? Have you had several others before? Kind of what, what did that look like when you were getting into the space, uh, doing business? And how did you stumble upon or why did you decide outsourcing? I've, I have a couple of friends I told you about just before we started going to live uh, that, that run outsourcing or heavily involved in it. And usually... It's like because they were consumers of the product and used it so much and got so familiar with it, eventually it made sense that they helped other people. I don't want to tell your story for you, but what was it like for you and what was that, uh, that starting point of outsourcing in your business and then as a business? Yeah, sure. So going right back, I, I got into property development as a, as a young kid. I um, built up a pretty significant portfolio in London, and then the financial uh, collapse happened. I was fine. I kept all of my properties, but I couldn't continue growing my portfolio. So then off the back of that, I built a service department or corporate housing business, uh, and we grew that then up to about 20 million US annual revenues. Um, that was a pretty significant business. And about two years into that, um, I realized I needed 24-7 customer service because it's obviously all international clients and guests. Um, so we came to the Philippines. I was recommended that I explore the Philippines for staffing. Uh, that was in 2011. Uh, so I engaged with a BPO supplier. I got my first staff member there. Uh, and never looked back. So I grew that office up to about 70, 75 staff. And the office in Manila then actually became significantly larger than the London operation. Uh, We had about 20 staff in London um, to manage the operation in London. uh, And we had the majority in the Philippines and they were doing everything from customer service to sales, to marketing, to HR, to accounts. And basically running the uh, the company from Philippines. Wow, what was the most before you were doing this also as part of your business? What was the most amount of employees and or kind of full time contractors, however you want to classify it, that you were running here or uh, whether in your country <laughs> or whatever country mm-hmm. they were from, versus what was the the largest amount that you got into as far as who you'd employ outsourcing? And that, that's like for your own work that you need to do in your other company or companies. Does that make sense? Yeah. So not including this business that I'm in now, yes. but the, uh, for, for my own internal staff, effectively, um, I had about 90 staff of which uh, 70 were in the Philippines and then about 20 were in London. Now, I that was a service department company. At one stage of that company, we did all of the 
the cleaners and linen in-house, which meant that we had sort of two or three dozen more uh, in London. But then we actually went over to a contract uh, contract cleaners and linen. Um, so we actually then just had a small core of 20 people in, in London. Um, but it is an interesting exercise. You know, uh, hotels, hospitality, it's very um, locally pinned. You need a lot of people on the ground specific to the location. Um, but we still had about uh, 70% of our staffing in the Philippines running that entire company. It's uh, very, very possible. So you ended up with 20 local, 70 Philippines. So you, so we're talking about kind of a one to five, roughly at 22% of your employees are still in person. And I, I, I really like that. Just to, it, I don't know if, if it's the right answer or what, um, but I think sometimes we think, hey, I'm going to just outsource to the Philippines or, or wherever. Um, mm. And that's going to be, you know, now I just have to figure out how to deal with this team. Um, can I ask you a few just kind of, I don't know, rapid fire questions almost? Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. You, I think you'll enjoy these. <laughs> but, you know, for me, like the, the things that come up when I think, because every time I talk to someone who's big in outsourcing in their business or for a business, I get excited. And I'm like, yes, I could use this so much. I have so much I want to do and so yeah, long. Yeah, yeah. My biggest problem or, or obstacle is the management and leading of the people. I know how to manage and lead the people on my team locally or virtually, and we have the relationship going and they've been trained. But I think, okay, we're going to bring on these people to do these tasks that need to be done. And the biggest obstacle is always I need to train them. Um, what's your take on onboarding an outsourcer? And I don't know if this is the right question, but cutting down the, the onboarding time or making that more efficient for someone who doesn't know what they're doing with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, it, it depends. <laughs> it's not a good answer. But um, really, you know, the idiot's guide is just think of outsourcing like employment. It is no different. Um, and if you're a, a company of a thousand people and you have processes, then put that new employee into those processes. If you're a solopreneur and you're just, you know, doing it by yourself and you would bring on your first employee in your hometown, then they would typically sit beside you and they would just absorb your work. And over sort of one or two months, they would start to do more and more and then they're off on their own. Um, it's really no different with outsourcing. You know, if you don't have processes in place, just get them on Skype, um, you know, sort of email them instructions. And then from there, the processes will grow. Um, I don't want to sort of overcomplicate it. Now, of course, it, it is better to have processes, process maps, um, to have all charts and all of these things, but that will come with the with the maturation of your business. And the nice thing about outsourcing is, you can generally look. You're going to save seventy to eighty percent on your staff costs, so you can generally afford to hire people a little bit earlier. You can generally afford to hire a few more people, so that you can actually start to build those processes and put those processes in place that help you uh, sort of mature your business. Man, that, that's brilliant. Can I tell you, Derek? Good job. <laughs> Thank you. This is, this is not a slow clap. That's a fast clap. Um, because that's the first time I've really gotten that answer. Usually, right. what it right. sounds like is someone a little more hypey is like, oh, it's going to be great. And we have this template and we have the this and that. And like, and it's no problem. But I really like that approach of it's simply just like any other employee, but it's a lot more affordable. Um, and you have to be willing to do that. So, Talk to me a little bit about the difference between if someone is used to fully in-person working versus virtual working. 
Uh, I had a funny mm. thing happen real quick, just real briefly. Um, we moved to the office. I moved from California to Michigan, so across the U.S. So most of my people are still based in California. We have an office there, and I've been working remotely with them. So over the course of the year, we've been figuring out this new brave world of, of virtual meetings and, and how we communicate and how we get work done together. But it has been a little bit of a process. Do you have mm. sort of a, your, your approach or maybe some advice for someone who has not done virtual teams in any capacity, how do you get started with that? And what's, what's a good approach for that? Yeah, look, there's a lot of tools out there now. If we were going back 100 years, you never could have done it because you'd be writing a letter and it would have got there three months later. <laughs> now we have the internet, you know, we have Zoom, we have video, we have tools like Asana, um, we have communication things like Slack, we have Trello boards. Um, and it really is just about utilizing these tools to make your um, communications enhanced. Um, it, when you're not there shoulder to shoulder, um, you really do need you know, more processes in place and more sort of centralized um, uh, kind of project boards, whether it's even just Google Docs or whether you're using sort of project management. Um, but look, I generally say, even though I'm suggesting that you should come and get staff in the Philippines, I generally say um, to that remote work is not as efficient. I generally suggest that you know have an office in the US and then have an office uh, in the Philippines. But remote work fundamentally, I believe, is not as efficient as having everyone turn up at 9 a.m. every morning, having a huddle, having a meeting, um, aligning for the day. And just being able to lean over and talk to each other if you need that assistance. Now, you can justify outsourcing. There is increased friction there because you're not in the same office, but you're saving 70 to 80%, which can enable you to transform your business. So there's upsides to the, to the friction. Oh, that's, that's brilliant too. Okay, so we have, there is some friction for that. And again, thank you for your honesty because this is so refreshing and so useful. Um, it, it really gives me some confidence to get into, to get into outsourcing. What are some of the best um, job positions or task-based um, ideas? Where do you look to outsource and where do you look to insource? Yeah, so start easy. People typically sort of say, look, I'm not very good at sales. I haven't really made any sales yet. I'm just going to outsource that. And they will, you know, call up an outsourcer and say, look, uh, kind of get me two staff and make me a million dollars sales. That's really hard. <laughs> you know, that is really hard. If you and can't do it, how can they do it? Exactly. And you've got to realize that business is fundamentally hard and managing people is fundamentally hard. So when you're taking on outsourcing, try something easy. Um, even customer service can be a little bit difficult because that is then these new people interacting with your clients and you should treat your clients like gold. So try something that is back office um, that you know isn't on the coal face of your business and try something that is already done and relatively repeatable and you have a good process for okay and then you're setting yourself up for absolute success so example roles are obviously basic uh, company admin uh, any bookkeeping um, any sort of uh, marketing requirements social media requirements lead generation um, you know, and just generally the sort of back-end functions of business. Now, once you get processes right, of course, you can go out to the, the front of shop. You can talk to clients. You can do sales. 
you can you know get PhDs and rocket scientists in the Philippines and top exec management. So it's all there, but just start off simple. Brilliant. Uh, I love the the distinction of the back of the house, front of the house as well, because that's something that I know a lot of my contemporaries have always thought, and I did too, which is, hey, I need an outsourcer. Let's start with customer service. You know, We have the ticketing mm. system. Let's get a, someone outsourced to go through our tickets and reply to everyone. And what a nightmare, because that's one that, to me, um, a lot of people don't start systemizing right away. You know, We work through because you can't really reply with templates, but you can. And if it's too templated, then it frustrates people, right? And I think we've all gotten that clearly outsourced templated email response from someone who is not in the office. Um, so I didn't want to do that, but I love taking some back of the house stuff. That's brilliant. Um, Derek, as we kind of wind down our time here, um, right now today, how many, and it's just off the top of your head, but how many companies-ish are using you? How many outsourcers do you work with through your company right now in the Philippines? Kind of what's the scale and where do you hope to go for your own business in this? Yeah, sure. So we are the, the world's leading outsourcing marketplace and advisory. Uh, we list 700 outsourcing suppliers on our website. We literally represent the Philippine outsourcing industry. Um, we also have about 5,000 pages of content, um, but we also do uh, offer fully managed services. We offer co-managed services, you know, and we can help you directly with your outsourcing needs. Um, we have uh, dozens of clients um, covering now hundreds of seats across the range of uh, fully managed to co-managed to advisory. Um, so, you know, we're well established in this business, um, but it's really our primary goal is just to inform people about outsourcing, make them comfortable, and uh, hopefully just uh, start that initiation with uh, with them exploring outsourcing. That's brilliant. So the the distinction I just want to make sure everyone got as well is you're running a full service, meaning we can go to you and say, hey, we have this job position and we might pay a little more potentially because you're managing the people and the relationship. And you also have kind of a job board, so to speak, where you have all the people um, and we can go and find them and see what their strengths are and look at their resume and then hire directly kind of, I don't know if this is the right word, but almost brokered through you. Is that right? Well, we, we uh, broker, if that's the right word, uh, Probably not, outsourcing but. suppliers. <laughs> so we, we can connect people with outsourcing suppliers. And the difference between going direct and through a supplier is that then the staff are sitting in A-grade office facilities. Yes. They're getting HR support, admin, recruitment all of the government contributions are paid for. It's in within a proper legal entity. And then there's structured account management. So that's what we recommend if you're going to outsource. Don't get someone sitting in the province in a, in a mud hut because literally they can be. Um, get them in the city and get them from the best universities that the Philippine, uh, Philippines has. Um, so yeah, we broker those things as well as you know, we can offer co-managed and fully managed solutions. Right. I think that's important too, because because from that standpoint, what you just said is going from, if you're going to an individual and you might get a little bit better of a deal. Now, certainly there's the problems that come with that, right? Because you have an unreliability, you don't know who it is. It's a one-off person, et cetera. But to me, I think one of the other problems is is the ethical standpoint of when you're throwing money just kind of in the middle of a village somewhere, whatever the country is, it's really drastically um, influencing their economic system. And it's it, it doesn't help. It's actually help, helping with some of the problem. But when a company comes in, 
there's certainly companies that don't do it the right way and companies do it the right way. But when a company comes in and there's, you know, they're in line with the government, they're in line with the people, then like you said, they can provide, um, you know, literally just a safe building that's not being condemned. They can provide a safe environment for breathing and, and childcare and so forth. You want to, when you're using a company like, um, like Derek's, what happens is you're helping, these people are going to find an outsourced job somewhere probably. But if you, if we funnel more American or more UK dollars towards the big companies that are doing this the right way, it forces the individuals to say, well, you know what? I guess I should go into the city. I do want to do it the right way. I want to get into this healthier, more A environment and not sit there on my own or not go to one of these sweat, you know, uh, hut type places. So um, kudos to you for doing that. I think uh, ethical outsourcing is so important as well. Yeah. Uh, Derek, as, as you wind down here, I just got a quick question. I wasn't going to ask this at first, but the other person I had talked to was John Jonas. And I just saw that he was like the last episode just before you on your podcast. Yeah. Tell me about your relationship with John Jonas because he was my first insight into outsourcing in the Philippines. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, he's a great guy. His online jobs.ph is a jobs portal. So if you want someone to work from home, uh, you know, then you can connect directly with those people in the Philippines. Um, it's a different approach to outsourcing. It has its pros and cons, um, but their website is great. And he's, uh, you know, created about 200,000 job connections. And um, it's definitely a good place to go and have a look for, for people out there in the market. That's wonderful. So, so online jobs PH with John, he's going to be doing more just the the one on one and connecting with people from home. Whereas you are going to have the broader perspective. You'll have all the different levels from broad to specific and directly through you or pointed at from you. So that's the place to go. So where do, where do you want to go to find out about this? Find out about you. Hear a little more of that story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just our website, which is outsourceaccelerator.com. Uh, and it, look, it's all explained there. All of the different business models are explained there, all of the different pricing points um, and also salary expectations for staff and and how you get these things off the ground. So it's all there. And, see, and you also have a toolkit available too. So this is going to help us to get kind of ready and understand uh, what to expect and how to maybe bring on our first or 10th outsourcer. Absolutely. There's uh, there's a toolkit there you can download completely free. You can also book a discovery call. You can get three free quotes on the website. Uh, so it's it's all there, just you know, no obligation and just enabling people to to explore outsourcing and see if it's right for their business. All right, look, Derek, you you got me, you won me over, man. So when you see my name on your thing, or yeah, <laughs> when, when when your outsourcer sees my name on your on your form, tell them to treat me nicely. I can't wait to uh, to check you guys out. Uh, I'm looking forward to growing my business, and this is a, a hot button for me. I know it is to a lot of listeners, Derek. Last question. I'll let you get going and get on with the the gym. Um, if you were to change anything in this whole journey of countries and successes and failures and everything, what would you change or would you leave it all the same? Uh, look, I had a pretty, uh, look, I, it's been a roller coaster ride. Um, there, I wouldn't really change anything though, because you know, you wouldn't know where you'd end up now, uh, the butterfly effect and all of that. Um, but I wouldn't, be so rushed and you know I would take my time and enjoy the beauty of life more by the day uh, as opposed to you know in my 20s and 30s I was like I've got to be a billionaire tomorrow um, and it's not about that <laughs> <laughs> it's not about that 
I couldn't agree with you more, my friend. Well, hey, Derek, thanks so much for taking the time out of uh, out of your workout schedule this morning to be with us and enjoy sunny Philippines. Absolutely. Thank you, Matt. All right, guys, that's the show this week. Thank you so much to my guest, Derek Gallimore. Uh, Derek, it was just really, really incredible businessman. I thoroughly enjoyed that interview. Remember, if you want to find out more about good sustainable outsourcing, um, ethical outsourcing, and productive outsourcing to make it your business really crank to the next level, check out outsourceaccelerator.com and follow Derek uh, on Facebook at Outsource Accelerator. And follow me on Facebook and Instagram and all those great places at Matt Browning. Make sure you subscribe to the show. You can go to Matt Browning Podcast and get our other shows as well. If you're listening on the radio, make sure you go to the podcast uh, on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, The Driven Entrepreneur. You can subscribe and download so you won't miss an episode. Every Tuesday, Teaching Tuesdays. Every Friday, Interview Fridays. It's Friday, so I'm going to let you go for the weekend. Get out there and crush it. See ya.